Vince Moffat has been around. His presence can be felt in virtually every aspect of Team Rubicon. From a leader in Nepal to a gray shirt in New Mexico, Vince has always been a cultural icon. While his roles within the organization have been many, his best identity will always be as a gray shirt. Come along for the ride and hear some fantastic stories in history of Team Rubicon. I've been a gray shirt since 2013. Um, excuse me, um, actually 2012, um, August of 2012, so almost eight years now. And uh, my professional life, I was a firefighter. I retired at the rank of battalion chief in New Mexico and uh, was a FEMA task force leader for one of the 28 FEMA USAR teams that responds to the, the disasters throughout the United States. When I retired from the fire department, um, I still I have a rescue training business and uh, I kept me pretty busy. I was actually getting to travel the world doing rescue classes, um, mainly you know, technical rescue, rope rescue, water rescue, things like that. But I miss the camaraderie of the fire service. Um, and I found Team Rubicon and I was a little bit hesitant at first because I'd been following them and realized it was a veteran based uh, organization. Um, but one of my colleagues came back from doing a proactive mission in Haiti where they went and did some training for the the Haitians down there on on medical services, trying to create basically a hybrid um, paramedic EMT type program. And he came back and he's like, oh, man, he's like, this organization is right up your alley. Um, and uh, so I signed up and, uh, you know, I went to Hurricane Sandy and then um, eventually became our what we called the field operations manager at the time, a volunteer position um, for Region 6. And then I was a, one of the first paid regional administrators um, for Region 6 and then eventually got hired on as a director of field operations and then the incident management team chief. Um, and now I'm back to um, filling a local volunteer leadership position. But, you know, I am am and I always was and I always will be a gray shirt. And, and, you know, that term gray shirt is so ubiquitous in this organization. It's who we are. Like somebody asks, you know, you're in a class, who are we? Everyone eventually says a gray shirt, but I kind of feel like you've, you've gone through a lot of iterations of what that means to us as an organization. I think that the gray shirt has always been a great identifier, but I feel like there are a few people who have touchstones in the organization that really kind of helped define that gray shirt role and what it means organizationally. And, you know, kind of tell me, uh, you know, this is going to be a Mr. Toad's wild ride with you uh, just because of the longevity that you had in some of the places that you've gone. And I'd like to hear about memorable deployments, uh, memorable moments. <laughs> and uh, I basically, I'm going to hit go and and let you go there. I'm, I'm kind of excited to hear some of these stories. Well, so anybody that knows me knows <laughs> I like to tell stories. I'm not always very good at it. <laughs> but, um, you know, talking about the gray shirt thing, I think one of the things that's kind of cool about that that a lot of people probably don't know is when I was a director of field operations, we had a volunteer um, gray shirt. And then we also had a supporters tan shirt. And 
there's a lot of discussion about, you know, who was wearing what shirt and whether the regions could, you know, come up with their own colors. And, you know, region six, we're, we're a little bit rebellious um, in some of that and push the, the discussion. But one of the things that I did as a director of field operations, I said, you know, in the fire service, um, our uniform shirts, um, pretty important to us. And, you know, although some firefighters will trade those shirts, some organizations have a little tighter grip on it. And, you know, and, and you do not have that shirt unless you're part of that organization. You're either you work for them or you're intimately involved with them. You know, you're married or, you know, you're, you're a child of a, a firefighter. And so I took that same concept of the director of field operations with our gray shirt and said, you know, we're no longer going to give these gray shirts out um, to anybody who's not a volunteer, who's not part of our organization. And, and, you know, I remember when we did it, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, well, when when do you wear them and when do you not wear them? And, and really, it was a uniform shirt, but we didn't care if somebody wore it to the gym. And if you saw someone wearing that gray shirt, you'd identify with that person and say, hey, you are part of this organization. You're not a supporter. You weren't given this shirt because you were the mayor and in a town we deployed to. And we took a pretty hard stand on that. And really changed that agenda and through that transition that's when our volunteers became known as gray shirts because that was unique now to us and our organization our culture and um it was really interesting to see that transition happen because like i said there was you know we we're so used to just handing those out because we we kind of felt like they're um you know hey you you support our organization we're going to give you this shirt and we said no nope, we're not going to do that anymore we don't care what kind of donor you are you have to be one of us to have that shirt or be intimately involved with one of us so that was a transition in the gray shirt and that happened in 2013. Um, and you know, that was an opportunity for tremendous growth for organization. We just came off of starting gun in Moore, Oklahoma. Um, and I was a, the first I, I see in there for that operation and went back. I think I spent a total of 30 days on total operation there. And we had implemented ICS through that um, period of time too. And I can remember talking to, uh, the director of field operations at the time, Andrew Stevens and uh, Jake Wood. And, um, you know, we had met and Will McNulty, we were all involved in these conversations of, hey, we want to implement ICS. We just weren't sure if our organization was ready for it yet. And I said, let me try. You know, let's let's do this and let's let's actually run this operation using ICS and um, yeah. use it as yeah. kind of a sandbox, as you know, being a wildland firefighter sandbox. Yeah, we're like, this is this is a great testing ground. Let's try it. And, you know, there's some growing pains through there, but we deployed more people on that operation. Um, uh, it was our largest operation mm -hmm. to date, and to ex with the exception of Harvey, when we expanded, you know, into more of a right. uh, complex type ICS structure. But um, it worked, and we found that we could manage the the operation. We had better uh, accountability. Um, I think we're we were just more organized and it gave everybody a better experience um, through there and and so there was a lot of growth through there. So, you know that was a gray shirt that was the implementation of ICS and those were some difficult times. I think you know looking back at it now, it, it's a no brainer that you know ICS was great for our organization. You know we embraced it. And we saw that this was something that you know technically NIMS required of nonprofits, but there was no leverage to make them do that, where if you work for a federal or state organization, they could withhold federal money, but we weren't taking any federal money. So there was no incentive to do it other than this was the best practice in the industry. And we had a group of people who understood chain of command and, and trying to, to, to find a way to bring, you know, our military, um, which anybody in the military knows that, you know, that 
is always ICS is not always accepted there, but they understand the chain of command and they train in that and with the fire service and police department. And so it really ended up being successful model for organization. And, and, uh, you know, more was crazy, by the way, you know, you talk about memorable responses when we started that. And, you know, so many people who are been with the organization for, you know, in 2013 probably responded to that. And there's some, some part of that. And it, you know, we, we just tried so many new things. And it was really an opportunity for us to fine tune what we did. And one of the cool things about that is when we responded to that, um, we got an invite to go in to, to do, um, you know, Team Rubicon could respond, officially request from the EOC. And when we were in route, they um, stood us down and said, well, we're no longer welcome. And there was some, I think there was a little bit of, they wanted us to do a type of work, a scope of work that we weren't um, really wanting to do there. We didn't feel like it was our skill set. So there's some discussion about that. In the meantime, I just continued to, to move. I talked to our director of field operations said, Hey, let's go in there. We'll, we'll do some ad bond work and we'll, we'll see if we can't work things out with them. And they, we'd show up at meetings and we'd show them our Palantir. We talked to them about debris management and things that we could bring to the table. And they say, well, we don't want you here. We want you to do something different. And so in the process, we eventually were given the green light by the EOC to continue to work. We, you know, it was a great opportunity to negotiate and, but where this came full circle is um, Obama showed up to tour the tour the um, site, and um, all the the response agencies, FEMA, the, the the fire service, police department, all the politicians were invited. And we were the only nonprofit that was invited to this meeting with President Obama. And when he walked down the line, he was shaking everybody's hands. It was m- myself, Mike Lee, and Ryan Mills. Um, and he stopped and he paused when he was shaking my hand and. He said to the entire group, he says, do you guys, do you guys know who Team Rubicon is? And everybody like, no, they're the guys that we didn't want here for whatever reason that, you know, they're kind of the black sheep. And he proceeded to tell them about our mission. And it was just such a powerful thing because the president of the United States recognized what Team Rubicon stood for, what we're capable of. Um, he was familiar with us from Hurricane Sandy um, and and what we did in there and uh, Grease Lightning. And it really solidified us because we were doing great work anyway, but um, you know, it, it helped solidify. And afterwards, several people who tried to keep us out came in and apologized and said that they were um, pretty excited that we were there and they liked what we were doing. And so it was a real defining moment for, for us and the organization for sure um, in the midst of chaos that he was able to, to actually, you know, recognize us and the good work that the organization does. And I think that ends up being kind of a theme. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I've told this story before, and it was something that I experienced in uh, 2018 here in Idaho. Jake came out to speak at an event, and, you know, he, he was expressing that early on in, a, in the organization, you know, EOCs wouldn't take, him, take the organization seriously. And he'd go in there and basically say, look, give us the shittiest job you got, and we'll do it. All right, just give it, you know, we'll be the best shit shovelers you've ever seen. And I think that, you know, as we've professionalized the organization, and and I say that with air quotes because I, you know, we don't see ourselves as as these professionals. This is just the way we do business. And and I like this, you know, this cavalier 
attitude that we we still have within our DNA, but we're but we want everybody to be safe. We want to have accountability. We want to have all those things that make up a professional organization, but we're a little salty all at the same time. And I, I, I love these early on stories when you hear about kind of the who the hell are these guys and what the heck are they doing here? And then you you find these little moments where you get the accolades from the right people and it starts opening doors, but also kind of showcasing that, you, you know, you have to continue to evolve as an organization as you get bigger, as you get different capability. You know, I know out of that more Oklahoma thing is kind of where our, our chainsaw program started, uh, which, you know, for all intents and purposes was probably the most terrifying moment in the organization at the time. And a lot of, you know, we were cowboys back then with chainsaws and what a great evolution that we've gotten to today where we have a professionalized training department, where we have, you know, very specific training task books and ways to, for people to continue to grow within a program. And that has to do with a lot of different aspects as well of, of training and, and kind of that ICS implementation as well. So what a great time to have been around the organization. Yeah, you know, and thinking about that, looking back, it's amazing because you're right, the chainsaw program, I remember we had, you know, all kinds of different chainsaws at the time. And that's when we decided to go with one particular brand mm -hmm. um, and just to make it more consistent. And um, we started doing that as, as well as um, the heavy equipment. Yeah. I mean, we were doing um, demos with heavy equipment and, you know, that's where that kind of started there. And one of the things that started the professional is, professionalization of that, um, that, that you're alluding to is we realized that the risk was tremendous. Yeah, um, it still is. You know, the, the, yeah, t totally. And I think that it comes to a time where it's like, Hey, look, we're going to do this and we're going to put people out there. We need to make sure that we're one, we're, we're being good stewards or, you know, our mother's a donor, right? right? So we want to take good care of the equipment we're using. But the biggest thing is the accountability of our people and keeping them safe. And, and, uh, so, yeah, you, you know, going through there and, you know, another story that just kind of reminds me of this being the black sheep and, you know, we were the new boys. And I think there was still this perception, even when Obama came in with a lot of the other nonprofits of, you know, you know, who are these guys? They're going to be gone tomorrow. And, you know, we really tried to talk about the duality of our mission and sense of, hey, look, we're, you know, we're not only doing disaster management, we're built for this. This is in our DNA service and and chaos and these types of things. But we're helping with a population of people that need a place, you know, helping veterans reintegrate into civilian life through continued service. So duality is a beautiful yeah. thing. And we still had a hard time. And I can remember going to the national VOAD meetings and we did a presentation myself and um, David Burke at the time. Actually, he was my deputy as a, when I was a director of field operations. We eventually switched roles, but we, we did this presentation on, what Team RoomCon was and what our mission was. And I really tried to focus on the duality of that mission. And at the end of it, there was a few people that came from, from other nonprofits um, who specifically came to kind of sharpshoot us. And at the end of the presentation, when I asked for questions, someone said, you know, that they were, they were asked what they were going to do about their Team RoomCon problem. And I remember laughing and thinking, well, First of all, why did you come to my presentation to bring this up now? If you heard this six months ago at a meeting, why didn't you pick up the phone and call yeah. me um, and try to build a relationship? But the irony is now we sit on the National FOAD board. You know, Dennis Clancy is our represent, representative on that board, which, you know, we went from kind of being the black sheep and people, you know, 
taking shots at us to eventually that we, we were just tenacious in our approach. We didn't give up. We didn't let them beat us down. We were humble, but we were confident. And eventually I think, you know, the fact that we were, we were um, able to fit a role, I think that, you know, if you think about how many people in our organization that, that deploy, a lot of those people probably would not, you know, volunteer with a, another organization for very long simply because it's not the population of people that we associate with or that, you know, that we can relate to. Mm-hmm. Team Rubicon has done a great job of leveraging a group of people who really didn't have a home and didn't feel like they fit in to go out and do more work. And it's, it's a pretty powerful thing. Well, and, and when you look at the organization, as far as it's makeup from, you know, age, social, economic, race, religion, all that other stuff, you start looking at this Island of misfit toys and it, it really is that, I mean, all of us have this weird little set of baggage that we're running around with. And, you know, we're still trying to figure out what those voices sound like. And we're still trying to understand how we can include more, be more inclusive and just be more self-aware as to our place and where, where and how we make people uh, feel welcome. But I, I do love that it's kind of this ever evolving, constantly changing place. And I, and I also like the fact that I can go out the field and work shoulder to shoulder with somebody who I may not have any kind of relatable experience in my background with them. And at the end of the day, because you've toiled together, you've shared that unique experience of working hard and maybe doing some unglamorous, potentially grotesque and awful job, you come away with friendships that, that don't go away. There's a bond that's shared. And I think that that's where a lot of military veterans find homes you know they find that comfort i think a lot of the fire service first responder service feels that same way because there's those equal shared experiences i think it's also the beauty and opportunity that our organization presents is it's hard to define who we are because we're done i think as an organization we're done putting out labels on our people and that's unique yeah I agree. I, you know, that's one of my favorite things is, you know, it's like in any organization, you know, I've been so, you know, I've been at the top of the organization I've been, you know, as a volunteer, I've filled all these different roles and you get frustrated sometimes, you know, with change and as things go, it doesn't mean I don't love the organization, but you know, the people of what really, you know, the mission is important to me. And, and I realize that, and I use the analogy of team mural concept of vehicle. And it was a vehicle that I use in my life. And a lot of people in their life to get you from point A to point B. And then you park the vehicle. You can continue to drive the vehicle if you want, or you can just park it. Maybe you get a different vehicle. Maybe you have a Red Cross vehicle right. or whatever, you know. But, you know, I see so many of these people, they'll they'll burn their vehicle right. down, one, you know, when they, they get frustrated that they burn it down, or two, they, they decide they want to yeah. live in it. <laughs> and, you know, I think Team Rubicon is just a vehicle to get us from point A to point B, and I love it. It's my favorite yeah. car. And I, Team Team Rubicon is that vehicle I want to drive, but I park it a lot. And, but my friendships in this organization, the, the relationships are, you know, I have so many good friends that are from the fire service and other, you know, from even, you know, back in school. But my best friends, you know, the great majority of them are definitely part of this organization. They're all around the world and they're genuine relationships. I've, you know, I've held, I've, I've actually officiated half a dozen <laughs> weddings, TR weddings, and then attended, you know, attended weddings across the country. I get in a plane, I fly there and, or friends, you know, have kids or, you know, whatever. And that support is just amazing, 
you know, that I can keep in touch with people around the country as, as much as I can with, you know, people, even in my own community, they're, they're just the type of people that I, they get me and I get them. And, um, and then when you see them out on a disaster and what you said, the diversity of this organization has always been something I've been proud of because, you know, you talk about the gray shirt it doesn't matter if you're black, white, you know, gay, straight, Muslim, Christian, you know, we all get along and people may have slight disagreements, but they respect rule number one, right. don't be a dick. And right. if they can't, they leave the organization. You know, it's not like they don't stick around very long. We, we, we hold that pretty tried and true. And that's, I think that right there is a foundation. You know, we talked about all the other values of the organization, but you know, the rule number one, don't be a dick is so important. I even use it in my own business and everything else. And if you tell that to someone, that kind of makes them think about it, but that allows us to just, keep the really good people that can respect each other in the organization because they understand that rule. Well, and, and respect those differences. You know, we all have a different approach. You know, I'm, I'm that, I'm that guy that doesn't plan that far ahead. I'm trying to just keep up with what's going on in front of me. And, you know, then you have other folks in the organization that are, you know, planners way out. It's gotta be just so. And, and I, I, I like that a, people are always looking out for the organization. They're looking out for what's best. And if you come at, you know, a conversation that may, you may not want to have with another gray shirt, if you come at it, that they're just trying to do their very best from their angle of things. And it usually diffuses any, any conflict and it allows you to have a conversation and see each other's viewpoint. Sometimes it doesn't, you just need to be like, Hey dude, we're both being dicks right now. Let's take a break from it and come back, you know? And, that's also the beauty of the organization that we don't have to agree, but we still agree on the mission in the community that needs our help. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of right now with all the stuff going on with the racial tensions in this country, um, I just actually had a talk last week with Jason Ferguson, um, who's a great friend of mine that worked in the office. And we, we've had some really hard conversations. He grew up as a black man, inner city, Chicago, I grew up as a white man, or I guess we grew up as kids, but yeah, <laughs> as a white kid out in, you know, Southwest Colorado, um, you know, he had to deal with, you know, other issues that, that I never even thought of. And we had a conversation one time, it was actually about music and what we grew up listening to. And it, it evolved to my, you know, I, when I come home from school, when I was in sixth, seventh grade, I go grab my 22 or shotgun and go shoot things in the field while my parents were at work. And it was just part of who I was and growing right. up where, you know, where he grew up and the only people that had guns were the police officers and the thugs. And, you know, just, we had this, and, and it, that conversation always brings me back to the fact that, you know, him and I grew up so different, but the mission bonded us so tightly. And part of our conversation we had last week when all this stuff was going on, um, is the fact that I have a group of mentors from Team Rubicon. Um, my best friends, Jason's one of them, and you know David Burke and Nick Merzak and some of these guys um, who we get together and we hold each other accountable. Um, we are the type of friends that we're trying to evolve and make each other better. And so it's kind of really kind of cool because it's friendships, but it's also a group of mentors um, that we have. And then they have their group of mentors. And it's it's kind of cool because, you know, you don't see that, I think, in a lot of other, you know, workplace or, you know, even other organizations. And it's important. I think we all need someone who can hold us accountable and help us become better men. And they're not just going to look at, and women, mm -hmm. but they're not just going to look at what we do and say, ah, you know, that was a bonehead move or that guy's a knucklehead. We, we legitimately try to make each better. And we encourage that in an organization. And that right there is one of the best things. I mean, Team RoomCon has changed my life um, for sure. 
And that's part of the reason why is, you know, and people out in general public haven't been part of the military or fire service, police service. So they don't get mm -hmm. that. They don't understand that. And it's hard to, to understand just to, in general. It's like, oh, yeah, you guys are a bunch of um, bros or whatever. You, you go out and drink beer and, you know, you're just like every other bro out there. And we're like, no, we actually share <laughs> um, books and articles and, you know, and and fellowships and things like that to try to improve our lives and, and be better human beings. And that's all residual from Team Rubicon. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that I, I used the term earlier, you know, evolution, we need to evolve. I mean, you can grow up a certain way in a certain social economic situation in a certain part of the country with a certain set of values. But just because you grow up in those things does not uh, absolve you from evolving as things change, as the world changes, we have to evolve. And that's the, also the beauty of, of where we're at with Team Rubicon these days is it is evolving. It's going to constantly change. You know, I, I, I talked with David Burke recently about, you know, what we're doing mission wise in the organization. And, you know, we evolved on a dime. We had to change how we did our operations overnight and essentially change our mission set until things change with this COVID-19 response that we're doing. And that to me takes some, it's a leap of faith, it, but it also kind of speaks to our DNA that, yeah, when shit changes, we change with it and, and we get on with the business of helping people. That's that humanitarian spirit that doesn't go away in this organization. We want to help. You know, a couple of things just, you know, I, I wanted to make sure we talked about when we before we got off, because I, I was went down to the documentary in Houston and I was so mad that I forgot to tell a story about Nepal when we went to Nepal. And there's a couple of things I was pretty proud of. You know, we were doing international responses. The first reactive international response since Haiti was the Philippines. And I remember Jake came to me and said, hey, do you want to do this? And I was like, it was like a make or break moment for me. Um, I was like, I could really screw this up or it could be a success, but I was forward leaning. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And we, we deployed to Philippines and learned a lot of lessons there and did a lot of great work and, um, you know, try to negotiate our way in through like USAID and all the same problems we had in the US, you know, with like VOAB we had over there with the World Health Organization, USAID and these other organizations. And Nepal was a totally different story. We got in there and we we're actually sitting at a table with these organizations. And I can remember though, when we were over there, we took a team and we were, we, I had them deployed all, all across the country. We were in the foothills, we we're in other areas of the country. And, and we actually um, were very innovative because we were performing medical aid, but we didn't have any food and water to give them. We weren't given that by the World Health Organization, that logistical cluster was so shut down. So we went and bought rice and beans and we take it with us. And once again, it helped us be successful because we had water, rice and beans. We could feed them, give them some water, and then they they'd see our doctors and then when we were able to transition more into a recovery mode we transition even the doctors would slowly help us do some demo and re rebuilding type work while we were getting them out of the country and getting other people into this work but we had a second earthquake there and um i think the first one was seven four and the second one was seven two and we were in Kathmandu. And we ran out of the building that we we're in and I realized I left all my accountability stuff in the building. And so we had to rebuild our accountability out there and check in with everybody. And if it wasn't for the fact that we had done such a good job with our ICS and, and, you know, making sure we had a good chain of command and checking in with these guys. And you got to remember, we didn't have, I mean, we we're working off of spots and, you know, things like that. You know, we had the DeLorans yeah. out there and we're communicating through there and it was a very unnerving 
opportunity and people were shook up and people were jumping out of buildings and the whole vibe in the community was just so weird because they'd already been one through one and now they they felt like they were kind of okay and they had the second hit and they were just it was it was chaos and we went out and we got to work um with usa one um one of the you know the 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 international usar teams out of the united states to do building search um in Kathmandu with our team while our other teams continue to work out in the foothills and we had accountability. We felt like we were um, able to engage in almost any mission that we needed because of our depth and capacity. And and <clears throat> then when we were done searching these buildings, USA One had a canine with them that had actually um, cut its paw and there was no veterinary services over there. So we sold up the paw of the dog for them. Um, one of our doctors was able to do that for you know for this team, and it was just a really cool experience of seeing. Hey, you know we're not just you know a bunch of strong backs with chainsaws and heavy equipment. I mean we're doctors, we're nurses, we're paramedics. We're you know we can do just about any type of workout that we have the you know really I think what it is the willingness to do it. <clears throat> we can think out of the box where other people are still waiting for the logistical cluster to get them food um, or they're, they're anchored to some because of equipment. But <clears throat> one of the great stories on Nepal though, was I called and checked in with one of the teams that was out in the foothills. And I think it was like bro Burns and Jonah was there, Jonah Thompson and Nick Merzak. And I, I checked in and said, Hey, how, how's everything going? And, oh yeah, we're good. You know, it's good. We had a couple of trimmers last night, kept us up and, Oh yeah, we uh, we had a tiger come through camp too, and I said, "What? <laughs> a tiger?" And they said, "Yeah, the villagers came through camp, banging pans, trying to wake everybody up, and they thought it was like they'd been up several times that night because of the tremors, uh, aftershocks." And uh, they uh, got up and they heard the pans, and someone said, "Ah, I think it's just a wake up call for the villagers to go work in the rice fields and stuff <laughs> out here." And they said, "Okay, let's go back to bed." And the next morning, the villagers came back in. And they said, "Yeah, you had a tiger." run around your tents and we chase it out for you. And it's like, I thought, Oh my God, we, what we do between the earthquake and the tiger and, you know, just all that stuff, it really is high speed oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it's amazing that, and these guys come back now to their communities and the communities right now in COVID is a good example. They don't recognize the depth of experience and, you know, expertise they have in their communities because they discount sometimes because they're not always working for those organizations. But man, Team Rubicon has had so much impact now through COVID and, and with these communities because they don't have the experience of, you know, integrating ICS and thinking out of the box and procuring resources when there's no resources around. And, you know, we were successful here. And I know I've heard stories all, all across the U.S. from, you know, um, people are deployed. They're deployed out here on the reservation. Same type of stuff. And man, it's 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 amazing that that experience is invaluable in times like today. I I couldn't agree more. And it's very interesting when we put these odd you know you know groups together, like medical people and chainsaw operators. And we did that in Puerto Rico. And it was it was you know I remember when we started doing this. I'm like, how is this going to work? And we were actually working on a house trying to get a tree off of it. And we set up a medical clinic the next house over, like on the backside of the porch. And, you know, the clinic would kind of swell up with patients and they give us a whistle and we'd get down out of the, out of our, our work that we were doing with chainsaws and go over and help people 
check in. You know, we've got our chaps on, we take our helmets off, we're covered in sawdust. We'll get people checked in and get them rolling so that they can see the doctor and, and kind of get on with their medical thing. And then that would slow down and we'd go back to work. And when the clinic didn't have anybody waiting for them, they'd come over and, you know, hump logs out of the way and move debris so that we could continue to cut. And what a bizarre thing that we were doing then. And I think, you know, you think back on, on all some of our other international deployments, you know, going to the Marshall Islands to go help down there out in Mozambique. Uh, I mean, down in uh, Ecuador, I mean, wow, it's just, it's crazy, this capacity and capability. And what I love is, is there is such a hunger to continue to help. And it's, I really believe that not only is it all the skill sets and all these other things that we've developed and all the different uh, processes, but it, we have cultivated this, this fandom of humans. Like we're humanitarians, but it's like, it's not that simple. It's, we are really big fans of humanity and we want to see their, their situation improve. And we want to do the best that we can in that particular moment. And I, that's what I love about this organization is that earnestness to help other humans. Yeah. And I think what you, you know, you touch on a couple of things. One is I think managing expectations on disasters is so important because you know, like when we went to Harvey, for example, you know, I, I took that first, the, the first, and I think the only Swiftwater response, flood response we've ever done as an organization. That was, that was my, my group that went down and, and there was, man, I'll tell you, we, we, that was insane, by the way. Absolutely yeah. insane. And we, you know, it was tough because there's a lot of things that we probably didn't do right that, you know, coming from a USAR background as a, as a water and flood rescue instructor and boat operator, but we did a lot of really good things. But if you, you know, I had people call me, I want to go so bad. I wish I was there, you know, and, and I was like, Hey, look, it's okay. It's, it's, it's really not as sexy as, <laughs> as you're seeing online, I'm sure. Um, mm -hmm. Because we're learning through this stuff. And so managing expectations of people is so important. And I think, you know, especially with new volunteers, they want to go so, so bad. And it's like, Hey, you will get out there. But remember, you still have responsibility to support the other gray shirts, support your family, support your, you know, you still have your work and, you know, and vice versa. My, one of my big things with working for HQ was the gray shirt experience of what I called it. And remembering that, you know, if, if you've never worked as a volunteer or have very short um, tenure as a volunteer, you may not quite understand what it's like to be waiting for that call. And you've got your work lined up and, you know, your family's on board and then you're, you're, you sign up to deploy and then you have to wait like four or five days. And then you finally get a call at 10 o'clock at night to go and get it on a plane at six o'clock in the morning, you know, and type yeah. of thing. And so trying to manage those expectations on both ends are super important. And, um, you know, we've had some, I, I know like in Nepal, you know, when we had doctors get off, cause we did more of a medical mission there. Um, even though we, we had a, a great medical mission in the Philippines, but we're in Nepal and, talking to the doctors when they get there and say, Hey, look, you know, we want you here. You're, you're very valuable to us, but just so you know, we may not be doing surgeries as soon as you get off the plane or as soon as you walk out of the gates of this, you know, you, it may be more urgent care type uh, thing, or we may be clearing, you know, a, a roadway or, you know, I just need you to be a team player no matter what. And, you know, 10% of them would say, you know, this isn't for me. And, you know, we, we'd have to manage those expectations, get them back. But for you know, the majority of them, we'd find our group that would do whatever it took to support each other and work for a dumb fireman, you know, basically yeah. <laughs> that's what they're doing and trusting <laughs> me and in, in trying to, to engage a mission. Cause it wasn't easy and it never is trying to find the right mission and trying to 
to find a way to engage and be the best use of our resources, saying no to certain things and, and finding ways to engage and, and not just working for the official channels, but also working the, the back channels, you know, the, the grassroots groups. Hey, what do you guys got going on? What are you hearing? What are the locals saying? And those are things that just continue to you know help make us successful. And I think that that's probably one of the best things about this organization is this ability to, you know, be flexible and dynamic and do just whatever it takes to get the job done. And, and sometimes they're not very happy about it. You know, in the Philippines, we had a second wave of, I think it was our third wave we were getting ready to send over. And we realized that that mission was going to get shut down really quick, that it didn't make sense to send this third wave over there. Um, we run into logistical issues or anything else. So we sent them to a um, tornado. Oh, sorry, I'm getting a phone call here. We sent them to a tornado response out in uh, somewhere in, I think it was Illinois. And it was cold. So they're all dressed to go to the Philippines, packed for the <laughs> Philippines. And then we're like, okay, we, we can't send you there, but we do have a second mission for you. It's out in... And it was so cold and so miserable for those guys. And poor TJ Porter, I think he was the one that had to actually make the call to push those guys out. I called him and said, hey, we, we, we don't want these guys here. And uh, you know what? It, it was they did it. And they even though a lot of them were probably unhappy about it and they had all these high expectations of doing this sexy you know medical mission in the Philippines, they went out and, and spent some really – I mean, people like Sue Johnson, who's, you know, does not like the cold. I mean, no, no, you know, some of these guys, does not. Uh-uh. but, but they rallied, man, and they got it done and you'll hear some of their stories and they weren't very happy with me. I know, but you know, what are we going to do? Um, yeah. And we had to manage those expectations. That was probably the hardest part. I think in it, I think from a, both a volunteer side and, and in a volunteer leadership position, it, that did, that's exactly it. And you want to, you want to give everybody a, a good experience like they're like, we value your time. And I think it's something that we preach and believe in and act upon really well that we do value our volunteers time, but the disaster environment in, in our humanitarian, humanitarian response within that does there's something it's quiet. It's kind of like firefighting. You know, there are days when you are moving you are moving and there are days when you're just finding shade and it's it's you've got to be willing to manage that high tempo operation with that lull and it's sometimes the lull comes at the beginning and sometimes it comes at the end and it's it is it's it's a hard tempo to maintain day in and day out but i'm always flabbergasted at how well most people deal with it. It's, it's, it's yeah, and I think deal. the other thing on that too is like, you know, this basically the same thing. You know, I can remember going to um, wildland fires back in the day, and you, it just seemed like, you know, some of the assignments were great and some of them were horrible, some were miserable, but, yeah. you know, you just go do it because you were there. Um, and, you know, with USAR, it was the same thing, but with Team Rukon, you know, it's like, hey, look, you know, we need some people in logs because if we can't yeah. support these people, then, you know, everybody wants to kind of be out on the chainsaw. But yeah. sometimes it's like, hey, we got to cycle you through. And I can remember in more, you know, there's a couple of guys that were really good at what they did operationally, but I needed a strong safety officer because of the type of work we did. Yeah. And, you know, we have, you know, we, I remember some of the guys were really unhappy with that assignment, but, you know, getting them to realize, Hey, this is one of the most important roles we have right now. And we need you here because we got some high speed stuff going on. Um, you know, and they would, they'd step through there and, you know, I think um, you're right. I think it's a, you know, not everybody likes doing the paperwork. And no. one of my favorite stories is um, I think it was Mike Parham 
he was from, you know, down South and mm -hmm. he had worked as a volunteer and then he that was an ops chief role and then eventually moved to an IC role. And I said, Hey, what did you think about the different positions? And he said, you know, I really like to, to work with the, the, the strike team. So that was fun. He goes, you're out there with your buddies, you're doing work, you're bonding, you know, you come back, you just kick back. You don't have to do any paperwork. Ops chief. I had to, you know, I got a little bit of that, but I had a little bit of meetings. It was okay. Cause it was a little bit of both, but you know, the IC position was horrible because all I did was from the time I woke up at 6am to the time I went to bed at midnight, I'm doing paperwork, going to meetings, I'm not getting dirty. I'm not going out there, but I realize that I'm good at it yeah. and I can do it. And if I want to engage more people in this organization, I'm going to have to step up and do this, even though sometimes it's not my favorite position. And I thought that was just very mature of him saying, you know, Hey, look, this is where I need to be right now until someone else is here because it's the organization. It's my duty is I'm being called to this, you know, this is my, my calling right now. And, you know, that's a really mature way to do it. And I think that's having guys like him mentor some of these other people and realize, hey, look, you know, it's time for you to maybe take on one of these other roles, even though you, you know, really enjoy working that that position there. But we need someone in logs or we yeah. need someone in a command position or we need something, you know, to to do a support type role at home or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, it, and it's always interesting to me that, you know, like I remember, you know, becoming a regional chainsaw instructor and then becoming a senior level uh, regional chainsaw instructor, you, you get less and less time on the saw because you're mentoring. Your job is to make more, you know, there, uh, Alan Mangan told me the best way to be the best Sawyer mentor ever is to shove your hands so deep in your pockets, they can't come out <laughs> because then you have to, you have to talk your way through it. You have to, by mentoring them through, you have to use your words instead of getting in there and doing it or taking the saw away from somebody. It's like the worst thing you can do. You've got to be able to walk them through it with your words. And I, I use that to this very day. And it's hard because it's like in two seconds, I could fix, fix this whole problem, but it's not going to teach them anything. And they're not going to be better when they're all done. They're just going to realize, oh, well, somebody will come in and fix it. And I think the same thing goes with leadership within you know, the structures that we set up when we're out on operations. It, yeah. Uh, being a logs person may not be the most fun job unless you're Sue Johnson. Uh, but at the same turn of that, it's a necessary job. And when I think taking that role, everybody's got to take that role at some point where it's like, yep, you're in charge and it doesn't mean what you think it means. <laughs> yeah. I think just on that note, just on a topic of mentorship, you know, one of the things that I think, uh, team member kind of helped me do more than anything was um, help work and define my leadership style, my skill set. And, you know, I, like I said, I was, you know, a fire captain, a battalion chief, a task force leader. So I had, had those other experiences, but dealing with volunteers was totally different. And I think some of the big takeaways from that definitely and it's made me a better, I think, just human being. But one is the importance of what you and I keep talking about is mentorship. Mm -hmm. And there's two parts of that. One is being a mentor to others and realizing that no matter where you are in this world, people are looking up to you. Yeah. So you may think, hey, I'm just, you know, Joe Blow, you know, the the, the gas station attendant, whatever. Yeah. You you are a person of value in this world and someone's looking up to you, yeah. whether that's your, your family or a kid who's starting that career or whatever. So remembering that people are watching and be, try to be a good mentor and a good example for them. And we all have make mistakes and screw up and realize that and own that stuff. But the other is, for me is finding mentors and, and making that an official 
like relationship where it's like, Hey, I want you to mentor me on this. And, um, if you emulate that in both aspects, people come to you and, and you grow so much mentoring and being mentored. And then I think the other two things from team Rukon that really helped me is one is the importance of service-based leadership, which is what team Rukon's all about. Yeah. And what you and I are talking about, you'll do what it takes, what you're asked to do to serve others. And, and that's a form of leadership. Mm -hmm. And, and I think then the last piece of that, which I always talked about is, you know, from your experience in the fire service um, in the military, you'll, you'll remember crew resource management, mm -hmm. which is all about followership. And a lot of people are like, well, followership. So you're just going to stand in line and do what you're told. And it's like, no, that's actually not what it is. What it is, is realizing that you have a role and a responsibility to help make sure that the leader is successful and has the information that you might have and then supporting their plan in such a way that you know, if those roles were reversed, they would do the same for you. And those are the biggest takeaways. That, and I, I think that, you know, there's all kinds of leadership lessons and stuff in life, but those things now can translate into our gray shirts experiences and, and life experiences outside the organization, whether it's in, you know, emergency response and public safety, or it's in a corporate world or whatever. And you'll see these people grow and become just these amazing leaders because they, they follow those, those basic tenants that, you know, we, we see every day. And I think a lot of people don't, but if you officially recognize it, especially the mentorship piece, I think it's so important. Um, I, I can't underemphasize that or overemphasize that enough. Well, and I think you've got a, you, you've got a good uh, resume for that as well. I mean, and that's, I think the, the beauty of, of what you just said there about the leadership and the followership. Those are, those are two very challenging concepts. I think it's easier to always be um, rising up and moving up and seeing that as the success of, of whatever endeavor you're a part of. But it's that quiet part, the followership, where you're not just throwing your leader that you're supposedly following, you know, you're not just throwing them to the wolves and let them figure it out on their own. You're supporting them in a way that they are able to succeed. They are able to take care of their crew. They are able to take care of the people around them and make a good experience. It doesn't have to suck. I mean, a shitty job does not need to suck. You, there can be fantastic lessons learned in that and the humility of doing that that job that isn't glamorous, that is, that isn't always fun, but doing it in a way that is excellent is something that I see every time I do something with team Rubicon, where it's like, this person's doing a crappy job and they're doing it incredibly well. And they're making everybody enjoy the process along the way. And I, I, I love that about this work. Well, and you know, and the other thing to that, you, 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 <laughs> You know, as well as I do, that a lot of times the leaders aren't the best person to be in that official position. They need help. And so my job as, as a volunteer or someone on their team is definitely not to do anything that will help them become less successful. I may have a different idea and a, a different way of doing that job. And I it's my responsibility to, to talk to them about things that I might see in a respectful yeah. way and approaches you know, that they may not recognize. But when it's all said and done... If we don't all unite behind whatever that vision is and support it, then we will not be successful. And, you know, I think that's such an important part. And I see that right now in this entire world, you know, we're, we're seeing with, you know, governors making really hard decisions and people second guessing them from their living room, sitting behind a keyboard, um, you know, and I'm like, you know, at some point we got to just realize that 
these people have the best interests in mind and maybe they're doing it different. Maybe they have different motivations, whatever, but they're in that spot. And our job is to support those plans, but to also hold them accountable. And I think, you know, I want as a leader, I want people to hold me accountable. And I think as when I'm working for someone, you know, I think that's an important thing too. We learned through Team Rubicon is there is accountability. If you screw up in the organization, there's consequences up to being removed yeah. from the organization. And and yeah. I think that that's okay. If, if we know what the rules are and what the expectations are, you know, if someone holds me accountable, I can't blame them for doing their job as a leader. Right. And right. if I'm in that position, I have to hold them accountable. I, I would expect them to understand too, but it's all part of that. that that's probably a larger conversation. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and that's that's the beauty of kind of this platform as well is, you know, with, by the time somebody's done listening to this or to another podcast, there there should be more questions than there are answers. And that's a good thing because it allows us to continue to to look into who we are, how we fit into that, where's our stance in that. And I think at the end of the day, we just want to communicate and we want to hear other ideas and other processes because they all make us better in the long run. And that's that this has been a crucible of that in this organization that everybody's got some input, you know? Yeah. And I think that one of the things that I, if I had to give anybody in this organization some advice, one is, you know, don't overstate who you are, and what you do, because there's, yeah. there's a lot of people that are connected in this organization, but two is don't discount anybody. You know, that, you know, yeah. young kid or that, you know, that, you know, old fart that, you know, is all crotchety, you know, like my, my favorite guys are those Vietnam vet guys that come out and, uh -huh. and the stuff that everybody here, you don't know what life's experiences people have had regardless of no. where they're coming, you know, from and for people to judge others and, and to try to treat them poorly or whatever, because that was their experience from their previous military or, you know, first responder experience, or whatever, this organization is full of just people with amazing life experiences. And so, you know, I think that's really important too, is to remember that the person sitting next to you um, may have so much to teach you if you just give them an opportunity and listen to them and, and learn from them. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think that that's one of the things that I've, I've, I've seen people do. They, they, their experience with leadership is to, you know, knife hand everybody and, you know, do some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And we've definitely swayed way far away from that in this organization. And there's so many just really just solid, you know, people and, um, man, the stories and life experience are just amazing, um, at every operation you ever go to. And, and I think that's really, that's, that's a, a, a theme for, for what, what, it, what this podcast is all about is stories are incredibly important because it tells us who we are and the makeup of this organization, but they also reaffirm and re reassert who we are as an organization, our beliefs, our mission statements, uh, our values are, are reaffirmed by those stories. And, and it, it really is a collective culture that we're building. And it always amazes me how similar we all are at the end of the day than different. And I, I would agree with you across the spectrum. I, I can always find somebody or some way to, to associate with somebody that may not on the surface look like anybody I would associate with at all. I, I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I had a friend one time who um, grew up um, in a totally different way that I grew up and we were on a, on a mission together. And, 
he told me one right night, he said, you know, I'm really glad we did this together because he goes, man, I would have never associated with a guy like you um, back in, you know, he grew up inner city LA. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and he said, you know, you're just, you, you know, you're a white square guy. <laughs> and he goes, we're yeah. down here now working together. And, you know, I see the value you bring, you see the value, you, you know, we respect each other. And that was an eye opener for me too, because, um, you know, I do think that that's part of those things that shared experiences allow that to happen. And when you put on the gray shirt, you know, you're taking off whatever, whatever, you know, persona you took on in your, you know, your personal life. And now you put on a gray shirt and we kind of breaks those things down. And uh, I think that that's, you know, once again, what we keep talking about, the beauty of a gray shirt, you know, and mm-hmm. best friends are people that, you know, you originally would have probably, yeah, that's not the type of person I would have hang out with. But what brings us together is that service aspect, you know, the humanitarian aspect that you talked about. Um, mm-hmm. and it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff for sure. And, you know, I think just, I know you probably, we probably should wrap this up at some point, but I think when, when people are looking at the past and, and this organization and what it's going through, I, I think that, you know, we're, we're definitely going to continue to grow and have, you know, growing pains and things are going to change and things are going to adapt. But I think if you look at the, the good and, and when people get frustrated and they say th- see things that are bothering, if you look at all the good that this organization give give you and take that and then don't worry about the other stuff. You know, you, you really remember that analogy of a car. You can park that car. Um, you don't have to, you know, sell it or burn it to the ground or, or whatever. Just park it. And when you want to cruise around it, you can. It's still there. It's super reliable. And, um, you know, I think that that's one of the things about, team Rubicon that I just love is there's no level of like, okay, you haven't responded for, you know, two years, you're out type of thing. You know, you can always come back and the people are always there and they're really the highest quality people that I've ever met in my life from all different walks of life. Most diverse organization has made my life, you know, exponentially better because of that um, for sure. You know, I, I don't know that, I don't even know that we need to add to anything. I think, I think that's a great way to wrap it up and I appreciate your time. I appreciate your, your devotion to what you do both in your personal life and, and, and here in Team Rubicon. I really appreciate it. Comforting to know that the culture of service and the humanitarian spirit continues to be our best source of inspiration as we navigate the future. From our inception in 2010 to today, the kaleidoscope of gray shirts who make up this amazing organization are making a difference in our communities, our teammates, and in ourselves. If you have a comment, feedback, or an idea for Step Into the Gray, Email us at stepintothegray at teamrubiconusa.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.